You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 2nd, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. I have come to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> Evan, can you say that again, but do it twice as corny? (laughs) (laughs) No. No. Impossible. uh, You know Rowdy Roddy Piper. (laughs) Right? They live that movie. uh, Gosh, is that one of the worst movies ever? Worst. Worst. Oh, God, I love it. One of the best movies ever. Oh, my gosh. It's a cult classic. I mean, yeah, it didn't hold up as good as I would have liked, but it's still... Oh, it doesn't hold up? Whatever. It's still great. It's still good. It's awesome. The best bare knuckle <laughs> brawl I think in I'm any sorry. movie. Yeah, I can't look. I, I'm I get campy and I get you know. Yes, I get the brawl scene. It was rated like one of the best brawl scenes in movie history and so forth. Roddy Roddy Piper, John Carpenter directed it and all that. I'm sorry that that movie had so many flaws to it. I mean, if we were ever to do a review of that movie, oh man, maybe we should episode on that. Maybe we should. Yeah. I will defend that movie with my life. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be your Gene Siskel to the, your Roger Ebert, oh, or cool. vice right. versa, or whatever. Steve, I'm getting a feeling like in the back of my head, like I feel like I'm predicting that we're gonna do a show on predictions. I, I think you're right. Today. Damn, you're good. It's a high, One of these days, high probability hit. But first, Rebecca's gonna tell us about January 5th. Happy birthday, FM Radio. Awesome. Ooh. What does F, the F and FM stand for? Frequency. Frequency modulation. Thank you. Yes, sort of. I mean, you could probably pick any number of dates for the birth date of FM radio, but on January 5th, 1940, the first network program was broadcast on FM radio. It was called Colonel Harrison Featherbottom and the Fart Man's Morning Zoo Hour. (laughs) What? No way. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. it. Okay. What? (laughs) Okay, no, that's, that's not what it was called. Uh, oh, but it was, <laughs> it was a 60 minute show that was, uh, it was designed to showcase several different types of audio and vocals and stuff that would eventually be broadcast. The show traveled from a station in Yonkers, New York, that was operated by one C.R. Runyon, to a transmitter in Alpine, New Jersey, operated by Major Edwin Armstrong of Columbia University, who was heading up the effort. And then on to Meriden, Connecticut, Paxton, Massachusetts, and then finally Mount Washington, where it was transmitted by telephone wire to Boston and then back to Yonkers. By all reports, the FM broadcasts were found to have no apparent loss of quality. So uh, it was given the thumbs up. The first FM stations that had regular scheduling programming uh, appeared later that year. FM. Yeah, Jay, Jay, frequency modulation, that's how the information is encoded in the carrier wave, by modulating the frequency of the signal, as opposed to AM, which is amplitude Amplitude. modulation. Yeah, you modify the amplitude of the signal. Thank you, Dr. Marconi. Right. And the the FM band simply refers to, band is, FM has nothing to do with any frequency range itself, any band, but that's just the band that's assigned in various countries to to transmit FM signals over. So in, in... uh, the U.S. in most places, it's 87.5 to 108.0 megahertz. Well, as Jay was saying, as Jay predicted, this is our Psychic Predictions Review episode, the first episode of every year. We look back and see how did 
the Psychics Fair and predicting events of 2012. Horribly. As expected, though. All right, so do you guys have your favorite psychic that you uh, looked back over to see how they did? Did anyone else take Nikki? Because, you know. I decided to skip Nikki. She's always a favorite, though. She's awesome. (laughs) Mm-hmm. She, she's the funniest. Awesomely stupid. Awesomely awful. Yeah, but this year after reading, going through her stuff, I think she's either delusional or she's just shotgunning. Or both. These are not mutually exclusive. That's right. Well, she made like 180-something predictions. That's, that's by definition, shotgunning. All right, so I got uh, more laser attacks against planes. Ooh. <laughs> more laser attacks. Yes, more laser attacks. That's what I thought was funny about choo, that. Choo, 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 uh, choo. So you mean like choo. little kids with laser pointers? Yes. <laughs> They're a using, menace to society. Using uh, laser pointers to blind pilots. Yes. Uh, I got uh, weird weather conditions worldwide, including snow in Hawaii, Las Vegas, and in the Caribbean. Yeah, remember that snowstorm nice. we had when we were in Las Vegas for a tan? Giant prehistoric uh, sea monsters under the sea. As opposed to what? Floating in the air? <laughs> also, some of our predictions are not even sentences. Yeah. Yeah. They're just snippets. Yeah. Major UFO sightings all over the world. Nope, that didn't happen. Earth will, will fall off its axis a little more. Yeah, right? <laughs> what? what? More than what? <laughs> exactly. I like how she. this one goes, a possible landing of a spaceship. Now, what does that really mean? <laughs> a possible landing. Well, we landed- Like the, the Mars uh, rover? Well, Mars rover. Yeah, we, we landed Curiosity on Mars. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to call that a hit. Okay. Hey, Nikki. <laughs> Good job, Nikki. How about this first one? time ever? Guys, guys, a disabled man attempts to go around the world in his wheelchair. <laughs> what? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, uh-huh. that basketball was this game a manual or one of those electronic wheelchairs? A power oh. wheelchair. And Steve, tell me what's wrong with this one. A huge pandemic worldwide. As opposed to a <laughs> pandemic that's not worldwide. Yeah. Yep. A localized and pandemic. That's, and that's small. Localized pandemic. Highly, highly localized. Now, here are two that proves that she doesn't understand science at all. Ready? Earth will fall off its axis a little more. Yeah, we said that. Yeah, we did that. Or a hole in the Earth's core. A hole in the Earth's core. Whoa, what the... What does that even mean? Like yeah, a hollow a earth vacuum, thing, maybe? A, a vacuum Bob, in the center of the Earth. Don't worry about that hole, because the Holy Grail will be found. <laughs> the Holy Grail will be found. Wow. I didn't also, know it was lost. She wrote, problems with the Earth's magnetic fields. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> what kind of problems? <laughs> Well, it must be that the city of Hong Kong is on fire, Steve, that threw off the magnetic fields, because that's another one of her predictions. City yeah. of Hong Kong on fire. Did that happen? All of it? Think- no. All of it. City of Hong Kong on fire. It, it is funny wow. when scientifically illiterate alleged psychics make science-related predictions, like a hole in the Earth's core. Really? Here's another good one. Multiple rainbows in the sky all over the world <laughs> within a 24 to 48-hour period. No, that, that oh, happened, no. too. That, oh, that I saw that, yes. that double and rainbow video. Double rainbow? <laughs> what the heck is that? I, double rainbows are magnificent, though. I saw one last, like... Two years ago? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's just mesmerizing. Oh, we got tripped up on a science or fiction with that triple rainbow. Yep. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that sucks. Guys, how about a famous racehorse will be kidnapped? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Man, man of War? That was a Sherlock Holmes short story. A meteorite what? shower hitting the earth. Oh, <laughs> Nikki. 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 Oh, go, go back to whatever Sometime you Sometime in August. Yeah. And then again in November. No, uh, that's that's the, the leads. And the, and the yeah. Gemini. But, you know, and we're only reading a few, but when you read through, she actually, like, she'll get on to a quickie mini theme inside her predictions. Yeah. As if she yeah. just banged them out at her desk <laughs> one afternoon. 
Like, or her, her assistant did. Yeah, like she'll get on to the theme of earthquakes and then she'll list like four earthquakes. As if, oh yeah, yeah. earthquakes. And then she writes more earthquake ones. An earthquake in Russia. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there was an earthquake somewhere in Russia this year. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more than one. I, I covered psychic Roxanne. Either any of you guys do Roxanne from spiritnow.com? No. Nope. I don't think I have Roxanne. She has different. Nope. This is Roxanne Uselman Holderman. Just call and her orchestra. Yep, and her orchestra. So she had different categories, and these are the. Just going to go over the two categories that thought were most interesting. I didn't do like the celebrity predictions. Who cares? These are her spiritual predictions. I'm not even sure what makes these spiritual, but here we go. Einstein's predictions about the honeybees proves correct. They are becoming extinct, indicating it is the beginning of the end of the world. Oh. Einstein. Beginning of the end. So I'm like Einstein. Really, Einstein predicted the honeybees would become extinct. So I looked that up, and Joe Einstein. There is a quote attributed to <laughs> Albert Einstein that if the honeybees became extinct, mankind would become extinct within years. You know, four by four years later, just emphasizing how important bees were to humans. They, you know, and how important the preposition "if" is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he didn't predict that they would become extinct, and it's not even sure if Einstein said that quote. It's not really so- sourced. Um, it, it could, he could have said it, but we, nobody knows. It was attributed to him, but anyway. Yeah, I know what that means. Here, number two, extraterrestrials, two words, help to evolve our consciousness, uplifting our human vibration. Jay, is your <laughs> vibration uplifted? Well, from the uh, waist down, yes. Okay. Wait, and, I, I okay. found a thing about vibration too, in a different psychic's prediction. <laughs> yeah. I heard that too, Rebecca. I heard vibrations brought up quite a bit. Okay, so I watched the Psychic Twins oh, video. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Terry and Linda Jameson. And yep. they I, were... I kicked their butt last year. <laughs> they were hilariously wrong. It, um, they started off their What's Going to Happen in 2012 vodcast podcast. I guess it was a podcast, actually. Just listing, like, all of these horrific things that were going to happen in 2012. Just, like... It was just going to be the absolute worst year for life on Earth. And amongst those, they predicted terrorist attacks in Boston, Florida, in Texas, New York, Detroit. They said Mm. that major schools would be victimized by young terrorists, which I'm sure they're going to call a win for last week. Um, They should be very proud of themselves. They say that there would be major cyber attacks by people in China and Russia. There'd be a Chinese attack on the telephone systems. That's a direct quote. However, according to the medium Ali Cheslik, who was interviewing them about their predictions, all these things could have been thwarted only if people raise their own level of vibration. Right. Mm-hmm. So apparently <laughs> we we all did a really good job raising our level of vibration to the point where none of those things not they weren't just like thwarted by authorities they just never actually happened. Oh, those so. would be good vibrations. Yeah, I, good I job, love everybody. I love when they give themselves their own out, you know, if it doesn't come true, well, no, right. luckily everyone, you know, <laughs> Messed with, played with their vibrations. Oh, God, I love it. <laughs> you know, win, I'm not, win. I'm not afraid to admit that they did get a couple of things right. I mean, but you're supposed to statistically, when you throw out as many predictions oh, yeah. as these people do, like they did say that there were going to be lone wolf attacks in schools. And it did yeah. happen. But that's just, again, that's a high probability thing. It's like another Columbine's going to happen sometime. Right. Sure. 
thanks for nothing. Yeah, somewhere by somebody. You know, yeah, no details. It seems specific, but it really isn't. So that's one of the strategies. So it's a high probability prediction, and there's so much shotgunning going around that, of course, yeah. two or three are going to be glancing blows. So next under her spiritual predictions, the North and South Poles reverse their positions. Hey, I've heard that a Come lot on. of times. Ooh, spiritual. Here we go. Spiritual evolvement. Evolvement. <laughs> what? Hmm. Evolvement? Evolvement. I don't know why she didn't use evolution. On this third dimension expands the fight between good and evil. Now, what does that mean? That we're, uh, uh, weapons are being introduced? Like, how, what does that mean? Tire- so, you know, we're fighting the good fight against evil more and more. Okay. On the third dimension. Whatever. Which is good because her next prediction yeah. is that the third and fourth dimension begin to merge. Oh, good. Oh, Finally. I hate when that happens. Yep. It's like when peanut butter and chocolate come together. It's yeah. good stuff. But... Don't you dare Hold on to your hats now. Whoa. whoa. <laughs> With the great pyramids in Egypt being destroyed, you guys remember when that happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I missed it. Day. I missed Movie. it. Movie. The entire planet's magnetic force shifts, symbolizing the end of times. Then and only then do we realize that the pyramids have been holding our planet together. Oh. Oh, like a linchpin. Yeah. Uh, it's so clear yeah. in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what if, and then her, her final what, final one under that what? category is humans turning ever more towards spirituality, which is actually not happening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that, that's another theme that I kept hearing. Oh, everyone, the world is becoming yeah. more spiritual now. Under the environmental events around the globe, you know, lots of high probability there's going to be earthquakes. An earthquake impacts the state of Washington and California. What are the odds mm. of an earthquake occurring in a major earthquake belt? The earthquakes. All right, but here's my here's my favorite of all of her predictions: a solar star dwarf from the sun breaking what? off, causing damage to the Earth. <laughs> oh my God! My what? Jaw, what? that just yeah, a that solar star happen? dwarf. Like, like what? What is that? Oh, right. Phil Place got it. Phil Place gonna have to add a chapter to his book. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, a dwarf star apparently is gonna break away from our sun, and that is going to damage the Earth, which I, I imagine it would. If that actually oh happened. God. It's like, Dude. is she flipping through a, a, wow. a science book and just pulling out terms at random without the, Does she mean they... like a coronal mass ejection? Is that what she means? Bob, Bob, you're giving her way too much credit. Bob, the only coronal... Uh, no, because in the, the next the next prediction is solar flares causing power outages, which I read on multiple psychics lists. The solar flares causing power outages. Again... It's the kind of thing like scientists say this can happen someday, so they pick, they just pick up on that. Yeah. It's a high probability yeah. prediction. Yeah. A contagious disease born of our of our environmental carelessness infects the world. Another pandemic prediction there. Nice solar star dwarf. And then finally, global environmental destruction connected with the end of times Mayan calendar. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there we go, psychic Roxanne. You know. The psychic twins had another uh, great prediction for 2012. Uh, yeah, for 2012. They predicted that there would not be any hurricanes in 2012 that were as bad as the previous year. So no <laughs> hurricanes as bad as Irene. Kind of, kind of missed the mark there. The interviewer Ali Cheslick predicted that the twins would have their own television show by March 20th of last year, which I don't. See think happened no so the twins also said that it would take a miracle for obama to get reelected. 
Well, I guess a miracle happened. Well, there you, you go. go. It's a miracle. Proof, proof, miracle. That, miracles, <laughs> proof that miracles happen. I got a, I got a few yeah. here. I got a, right. I got a, I got a couple from two, from two different psychics. One is Janet Russell, is a Long Island-based intuitive spiritual medium psychic. She's also the host of a New York top cable access show, Beyond the Unexplained, and how someone like her can have their own TV show, and we don't. I don't understand it. But she's known for her accuracy and honesty. Mm-hmm. She says, um, we'll be using solar energies instead of the old yep. standby of gas and electric. Solar energies in plural, mm-hmm. which is very odd. And then this, this one tickled me. She goes, and yes, the government will admit that we had, that we do have contact with other beings in other dimensions. You know, it's not good enough that they're other beings, aliens or whatever, but they're also in another dimension just to make it just the icing on the cake, you know different dimension i read janet russell's predictions as well and my favorite one i Which think one? there were okay there were two uh one was people will be airing their do- dirty laundry on teleservices this way they will have a constant audience <laughs> what does Glass- that mean Glass- what is no. teleservice? i don't know and the thing is like she's so obviously out of touch because my other favorite one was I feel that one state will be open to alternative lifestyle and people will move to that state because they feel more comfortable. Uh, what? Jesus. What does that mean? Alter- does that mean gay marriage? Does it mean pot? Because we have those things in several states. It's, I don't know. She just has her finger on the pulse of culture. She's just, there was another, there's another psychic, Nancy Bradley. Apparently, this psychic is 90, has 98.6% accuracy. For, wow. 2000, for 2011. Wow. So, of course, my first, take that temperature. My, my first, my first reaction was, uh, well, yeah, that's total baloney. But then I read her predictions. Uh, listen to these two: six more Hollywood icons will leave us in 2012, and two major music stars as well. What are the odds <sighs> of people dying in 20 in 2012? That that, that just kind of blew my mind a bit. And here's another one: more protests across the world and the U.S. as well. Sit-ins as people stand up. Much bloodshed. Wow, who could have foreseen Jeez, that? People shedding blood. And then, yes, and then she, yeah, some psychics definitely go with the vague high probability hit. Oh I was reading God. a couple that did that. It's like, there will be protests in Egypt. Look. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> Big and then, hit. And then she throws in one of these little, you know, sciencey ones that are kind of wacky. A shift in the equator will be discovered and will change some of the weather patterns for countries on it. A shift in the, shift equator. In the I, equator. I hate when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> the equator shifts. Does she mean the continents on the equator? What, what, Who knows what she what she <laughs> meant? It could mean anything. Ships, that's the best. She, she, she could be referring to that solar dwarf star thing. <laughs> Who the hell knows? But God, that was the best, right? The yeah. solar dwarf coming out of our sun. Yeah. Wait, but yep. Bob, Nancy, Nancy Bradley also said... Uh, more aquatic ocean and lake animals make their way onto shore, octopus, fish, etc. Also, as I told you last year, more species thought to be extinct are coming back, including those considered mystical. Those that many thought never existed are coming back. <laughs> yeah. The unicorn, for instance. It's <laughs> coming back the in a pretty way. What about the, pre- the events that psychics failed to predict for 2012? Oh, yeah. That was easy. Uh, how many do you want? I have well, 20 of them here. Well, Hurricane nice. Sandy, first of all, you think, you know, yeah. such a huge weather event, somebody, somewhere. And it's in their sweet one person. spot. They're predicting tsunamis and earthquakes. They can't get that one yeah. hurricane, right? Come on. Yeah. Uh, the shooting in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. 
Although the psychic twins yeah. claim that you'll ask, yeah, we'll some that will claim did. that they did that. Yeah, but that in order for them to claim it, I thought about it because they did make a lone gunman prediction. But seriously, like that's just not good enough. Like you have to say more. It has to be more specific. If somebody said you that, need, you need two yeah. things, Jay. You need two things. If somebody said Newtown or Sandy Hook, that would be impressive as hell. Or if, or even if they said twenty six dead, or or say twenty kids. If if anyone said any of those three things, then bam, that is a solid hit. Of course, it wouldn't mean you know that that. Yeah, there's different exist. degrees of hits. I could have said an elementary school. You know, they could have said a yeah. lone shooter killing you know many kids in an elementary school. Even that would that, have been even that would have been semi impressive. But just a lone wolf or just no terrorism yeah, in schools, not way yeah. too vague. Yeah, Sorry. I'm taught. Yeah, because when you think of a psychic, if, if a psychic really existed, you would expect somebody, of one person or a few people, to have a really solid hit, something really specific. I mean, isn't that what everyone really wants? That's what we want, right, guys? Yeah, but that's the thing, Bob. When you every year when we read through all these psychic predictions, you know, we're just doing our research. It occurs to me they're once again they're just playing the odds. You could see them playing the odds. There's patterns. You know, there's a reason why a lot of them predict the same types of things over and over again. And they're also just partly going for the sensationalism. I mean, the ones they they know are not going to come true. You know, like the the solar dwarf. They're just trying to say impressive sounding things, right? And they because they know right. no one's going to care. The people there are their target audience. They're not going to go back and check up on them and see what happened. And they don't care what we're saying. They'll be reading the predictions for 2013. All right, what about the Causeway Cannibal? Yeah, Things. absolutely. Right, my Oh, yes. yes. Too, too specific, though, Steve. Too specific. The fiscal cliff. Yep. Yeah. The, yeah. The Petraeus scandal. Yeah, yeah I had that. I had mm-hmm. that one too. The attack the, in Libya. The Benghazi shooting. Yeah. The president yeah. supporting gay marriage. How about deaths? I mean, like, did anyone predict the death of Whitney Houston, for example? And if they're going to dabble in science, how about a high probability? Like, if they really were going for a high probability science prediction, how about Higgs the boson. Higgs will be discovered? Higgs I mean, <laughs> yeah, that would have been good. They, you know, yeah, they, Higgs, or the lander will successfully, yeah. you know, everything will go smoothly there. You know, it could even do that one. How about Facebook Jay. going public? Yeah. Yeah. Facebook, yep. The, that debacle? Yeah, good one. All right, well, I, I listened to last year's episode to see what we all predicted. I remember one prediction, and I remember saying that Google Plus would die in 2012. Okay. I, unfortunately, I mean, it's I on wrong. life support, but... Yeah, it is. Five predictions. What, what were they, Evan? Uh, I made one in each of the following categories. Technology. The Akash tablet would outsell the iPad by the end of 2012. Mm-hmm. And? You know, the Akash tablet. This is a $35 tablet that they made in India. Oh, right. right. Already actually up to the Akash 2. And I figured, all right, so you got the, you got the Indian government. They're subsidizing this thing. They're going to get this out to, you know, 500 million Indians, you know, students and everyone in the country. And that just... Pure numbers is going to overtake. Well, it didn't quite happen. I think I think some of the problems were in the technology itself. Uh, even though it cost thirty five bucks, they said uh, it heats up very quickly and uh, poor design, cheap components. Uh, it won't play any of the you know apps that are that are out there. The battery life is poor. I think those things might have had something. Yeah, to do. it's a thirty five dollar tablet. Sure. That's why <laughs> you get what you pay for. In astronomy, a small meteor will collide with one of the many GPS satellites in orbit, rendering it inoperable. Now. 
That did not happen this year, but guess what's coming up next month, folks? <clears throat> uh, a uh, meteor, or I'm sorry, a small asteroid will pass inside the geosynchronous satellite ring. Irrelevant. About Irrelevant. Thir- you didn't get 35, it. 35,800. <laughs> wow, that's damn close. How yep. big is this thing? Kilometer, kilometers above the equator. Uh, 150 feet. 150 feet long. Damn. And they, uh, astronomers say the asteroid may hit a communications satellite. So well, it doesn't matter. You know, it's irrelevant. I don't know. I get Nope. It's irrelevant. No partial credit no, for you, sir. You still missed it, dude. <laughs> Nothing irrelevant about that. Yes, it didn't happen, but the predict, but the uh, science behind it was revealed in the year, so I'll get a half credit for that. Biology, bioengineered tooth regeneration will become available for humans. Well, that'd be cool. Because I've been kind of following that. They're still doing more uh, studies with mice and stuff, and they're making progress. They made more progress this year, but they didn't get to the humans. So I'll take a minus for that. In skepticism, a prominent skeptic will defect and uh, over to uh, you know an, an alternative point of view. And that actually did come true because uh, 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 global warming skeptic Richard Mueller, who was a uh, proponent, you know, a big uh, proponent, saying that man-made global warming does not exist, in fact, did uh, leave his brand of skepticism behind and says yes it is actually happening so i'll take it i'll take a plus no, no for that. one knows who that guy is you can't take a plus for that richard muller steve no evan's right but that that was the wrong kind of skeptic it, i didn't hey <laughs> steve. Okay, all right, i got gotcha. you well, no, what, you want me to say brown dwarves are going to get crapped out of the sun? Is that a better prediction? <laughs> no, yeah, I think, actually, I think, it's awesome. I expect I more think, from yeah. you, Evan. Nope, you didn't get any. Zero. How about this one? Last, my last prediction. The largest glacier ever recorded will break off right from the ice shelf. And that did happen. Thank you very much. In <laughs> Antarctica, In Antarctica this year, that actually did happen. No, it did. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had one prediction last year, and it was a cryptozoological prediction, if you remember. I predicted that Bigfoot would sweep into the White House with a gray alien as a running mate, and that did happen. It 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 almost happened. But the cover-up is keeping you from knowing about it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What did Rebecca do? Good one, Rebecca predicted Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas was her celebrity death. He's still kicking. Ah. And arrest- oh, he I'm had problem. He had problems last year. Though. An Arrested Development movie. Did I miss that? It didn't uh, it's no, but there it's is going to be a TV right? show. Okay. Oh, TV and show. chimpanzees will be found to do something that scientists thought only people did previously. I'm pre- that probably happened. <laughs> Somewhere we may not have seen it or recorded it, but it might have. Yeah, it, it did happen. It probably happened. Jay, do you remember your one prediction? Yes, and that's why I've been arguing so much with everyone. <laughs> I predicted that none of our predictions would come true. Yeah, that's right. Wrong. <laughs> I'm more right than the rest of you. How about that? That's, that's why you were hard on me in my predictions because you, you wanted your on. prediction to come <laughs> true. <laughs> All right. Well, what are your? Who wants to go first in their predictions for 2013? I will. Okay. In 2013, everyone will start referring to the year as 2013 instead of 2013, <laughs> except for Rebecca. And uh, uh, the LHC will announce uh, a, a nine sigma confidence level in, uh, in the Higgs boson. Its existence will be English, Bob. Its, English. Its existence will be so obvious that fifth graders will start finding evidence for it. And <laughs> and. Uh, my only real prediction, a scientist will create a living minimal genome cell from scratch. Please mm-hmm. come true. Jay? I predict that Iran's going to test a nuke. Iran? Yeah. 
What? You, he very where, where, where did your Where did your you? run to, Jay? <laughs> well, seriously, like that's even pronounced wrong. Just say Persia. Einstein. Einstein. Go ahead. Yeah. Next, Einstein. I predict another private company will start launching space missions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Coca Cola. Beyond SpaceX. I predict that Billy Graham is going to kick it. Oh, we're okay. doing celebrity deaths too. Yeah. I predict okay. that George Bush Senior is going to kick it. Mm. And yeah. I, my final and, prediction. Any other ninety-something-year-old people <laughs> going to kick it? Hey, well, what do you got, want me to predict? Someone, like a twenty-year-old? How about there's someone in their seventies or something? <laughs> make, it, make it a little challenging. Um, okay, I predict that Evan Bernstein is going to choke on a hot dog. <laughs> my final prediction for 2013 is: I predict the end is Bill Nye. <laughs> Oh, nice. Nice. Wait, what? (laughs) And is nigh. Um, Uh, Funny. Mine are are great. You're going to find no fault with mine. Okay. Beat the end is Bill Nye. You beat that right now. Go ahead. All right. Number one. The Daily Mail will report that researchers have discovered pickles cause cancer. Ooh, I like it. I like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like that one. Number two. I don't eat them, so. A whistleblower will reveal that the government has been hiding something. <laughs> which government? <laughs> All right. I'd rather not comment upon which government it is at this time, but right. they okay, may have Mrs. the color red in their flag. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. You finally. The Swiss. I knew it. I will beat the game FTL on normal mode and finally get 100% in Skyrim. Oh, oh you're no way! Now. now you're really, you're really going yeah. for it. Now, no, it's now, on. now you're now you're now your son is crapping up. Brown it's on like Donkey Kong. Bob, Bob, what was your celebrity death? Yeah, I got a celebrity death, and it's not a an octogenarian Jay, uh, or is it a nonogenarian? <laughs> is that how you pronounce that? Uh, Lindsay Lohan. She oh, she's on my list. Bob. She's been rolling oh, no. a twenty for far too long. Her <laughs> time <laughs> is up. Nope, I'm predicting she's not going to die. Not even close. Aww. Yeah, she's on mine. I got three of them. That was one of them. I predict she's going to die, but her twin won't. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Oh, we're all going to hell. Evan, what do you got? Okay, in addition to Lindsay Lohan, uh, I predict a world leader, which is a president or a prime minister, will succumb while in office. A few options there, but it will be very prominent. And James Von Prague. Oh, why? Why? What, what did you see? What What did the spirits tell you? Uh, Jay, it's something that's beyond sort of a description. In technology, there will be a major data breach, most likely of a credit card company or something along those lines. This breach will cost consumers and their insurers at least $1 billion worldwide. Wow. In astronomy, we will discover a Earth-like planet known as Earth's twin. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's been my no. prediction for the last three years. <laughs> yeah. And how's that worked out for you? I'm getting closer every year. Are you going to try and take and it I'm from ta- me now? I'm that's right like you're now, sitting take- down at my slot machine, Evan. <laughs> oh, Evan just bid a dollar on your under your Price is Right score. That's what just happened. Well, we'll just share that yeah, with yeah, Steve. Yeah, it's nice. true this year. Good analogy, Rebecca. Uh, in health, a uh, handheld breathalyzer will offer early detection of infections uh, caused by microbes. What do you think of that? Ah. And in the environment, I only did four this year, for environment, 
we will find scientists will find a way to harness energy from sand. Now I admit there will be small quantities of energy, but it will be energy nonetheless. Like the tar sands. Sand. I. Tar sands are already a major source of petroleum, but I'm assuming you're not talking about that. Let's okay. I'll I'll, I'll refine it. Uh, desert you'll refine sand. This, you'll you know, refine Sahara, the petroleum. Sahara. Um, Sahara. <laughs> desert. Okay. <laughs> All right, I have I have a celebrity death and two predictions. My celebrity death is Jerry Lewis, unfortunately. Oh, oh. Uh, great comedian, <laughs> but you know his, his yeah. time. Oh, lady, <laughs> lady. I also predict that there will be a major pareidolia event this year. <laughs> nice. And finally, conspiracy a major pareidolia event. And finally, conspiracy theorists will use anomaly hunting to argue that an innocent or natural event is actually a deliberate conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so we will track those, and we'll let you know next year how we all did. All right, well, I think we have time for a few quick news items uh, to round out this show. So, Bob, you're going to tell us about another risk of space travel. In science fiction, the biggest problems generally for space travels are usually things like aliens, black holes, or warp core breaches. Really hate that last one, but it's and space really... worms. Don't forget space worms. Oh yeah, the worms. It's very annoying then to think that a little thing like a ultra tiny invisible radiation is is essentially a total deal breaker right now for allowing humans to spend serious time uh, beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, we've known for a while, we've known this for a while now. We've talked, we've touched upon it in the past a bit, uh, but more most recently, scientists have found even more bad news. A new study uh, described on the PLOS One journal reveals for the first time that cosmic ray exposure to humans on a trip to Mars can make changes to the brain that could replicate or speed up the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Now, I'm calling this the space brain syndrome, and it's really, it's, it really stinks. Uh, this it's is space um, dementia. I mean, uh, that's a good one, too. I like space brain syndrome better. Though we, now, we've talked no, about... We've talked space about, dementia. Uh, we talked on, uh, we talked about the cosmic ray hazards in space. And, but I, le- I learned a little bit more about some of these, some of these details and I'd like to share it. Um, it's pretty interesting. The culprit, the culprit here is a specific type of cosmic ray. Now these aren't rays, of course, but they're, they're bits of atoms that are propelled through space. Protons make up the majority of the cosmic rays, uh, followed by alpha particles, uh, which is just like two neutrons and, and two protons. And then electrons, kind of finish that list. Those are the majority, the vast majority of all cosmic rays. But a tiny, tiny percentage of cosmic rays are these relatively really big clumps of protons and neutrons, and they're called these HZE particles, which stand for high charge and energy particles. And the Z, if you're familiar with chemistry, the Z uh, is the universal symbol for atomic number, which is the amount of protons in a nucleus. So that's what that's what that stands for. Now, the, so the more protons you have with no electrons to balance them out, you you create a bigger and a bigger charge. Uh, the E stands for energy, obviously. So so what you end up with is these bare atomic nuclei with lots of protons and a lot of energy, and they can they can penetrate shielding of a ship through this and through the skin of the astronauts and just wreak havoc on your DNA, causing cancer and a host of other issues. So so this is this much we we've known for a little while now, and if that wasn't annoying enough. Um, now, they get this energy from supernovae and also the sun. I wasn't quite aware of this. The sun, uh, solar flares and coronal mass ejections also can produce, produce these HZE particles. You know, as tiny as these 
I mean, percentage-wise, HCEs are, are a fraction of a percent, but they can cause more than 50% of the radiation damage inflicted on astronauts. So, they, so these are the big players in terms of uh, astronauts having a problem with radiation in deep space. Now, Bob, so, because these are highly charged particles, mm -hmm. would that mean that magnetic shielding would be a viable option? Oh yeah, absolutely. If they yeah, if they didn't have any charge, then be, we'd be even worse off. So yeah, so that kind of leads into the potential one of the potential ways for dealing with them. The experiments that these that these researchers did, particularly specifically on how these HZE particles can affect people, they used rats, of course, uh, the most uh, helpful of guinea pigs. They they exposed them. To, <laughs> rats they expo aren't guinea pigs. Um. <laughs> they exposed <laughs> they exposed them to increasing doses of radiation, including the equivalent of what, what an astronaut would experience on a multi-year mission to Mars, which is pretty much how long it would take. Um, the, now, they tested the rat's recall for certain objects and locations that they were previously exposed to, and they found that those that had a bigger dose of radiation did, ver did increasingly more poor at those tasks, which, of course, indicates some level of, of neurological impairment. The real kicker, though, was that I guess after the rat autopsies, they they revealed they revealed indications of not only changes in the brain vasculature, but also in the accumulation of beta amyloid, which is that protein plaque that builds up in the brain of Alzheimer's victims. And Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but this plaque that's pretty much the hallmark of that disease, right? I mean, that's that's you, you know, if you find that, it's like the you know the, the 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 red light going off that you that you have Alzheimer's, right? These these those beta Amyloid plaques, is that right? They're, they're important. They're not unique to Alzheimer's. It's more complicated than that. But, yeah, they're an important pathological finding in okay. Alzheimer's disease. Well, the, I think – well, that was – from what I could gather, though, that was one of the main reasons why they, they, they're all talking about Alzheimer's here. NASA, of course, is concerned about cosmic rays, especially considering you know, they've had plans for a manned mission to an asteroid in 2021 and to Mars in 2035. So, I mean, this is no way that's going to happen if they don't, if they don't deal with this problem. NASA subscribes to a policy known as ALARA, which is as low as reasonably achievable. Now, any exposure to radiation has an element of risk, of course, but they want to, NASA needs a very high confidence level that an astronaut's lifetime risk of terminal cancer from cosmic radiation is less than 3%. So they will not cross that line. So they have to make 3% reasonably achievable to fit in with this whole idea of ALARA and, uh, and, that's going to take revolutionary technology to pull that off. That's not going to be a quick and easy fix by any means. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. All right. Well, Evan, we do have time. Yes. We do have time for Who's That Noisy this week? Oh, good. That's good because we need to reveal the answer to what was the last Who's That Noisy for 2012. I will play it for you now for memory's sake. Here we go. <laughs> Lovely Ludwig van. For release, it's one of the pieces I had to play when I was taking piano. Lessons. Did you enjoy it? Yes, it's a nice, a pretty piece. It is a pretty piece. But what kind of instrument was that? That was the question. Now, we had a lot of people guess that that was the glass harmonica, or the glass harmonica, also known as a bowl organ, uh, which is actually incorrect, although that instrument would create the same or similar sounding uh, notes 
but that was not it. We, we were hearing was actually the glass harp, which is a musical instrument made of upright wine glasses, and it's played by running moistened or chalked fingers around the rim of the glass, and each glass is tuned to a different pitch, thereby you're able to play all the notes. That particular piece was, uh, com- was performed by Robert Tiso, and you can see him on YouTube playing this, and uh, very, very talented in his own right, so... Yes, several people did get it correct. The first one to guess correctly, our friend from the message boards, Magnus M., mm-hmm. whose name we've spoken before. Well done, Magnus. And uh, Magnus. congratulations for being first. Okay, so 2013. We're going to uh, change things up a little bit for the Who's That Noisy in the Puzzle segment. For this year, we're going to run a little contest for all the listeners. And here's how it's going to work. Uh, each week when I play the Who's That Noisy or Give the Logic Puzzle, everyone who answers correctly, their name will be put into a hat for that week. And that week I will draw a name from the hat at random. And the person's name, whom I draw, will go into a final drawing, which will occur at the last episode of the year. And the winner of the final drawing will be invited to come on to the SGU to play a round of science or fiction with us. If you're going to submit a guess, we are going to require your guess by the time we record our next show, which is typically early to midweek the following week. It varies from week to week, but there's a little incentive there to uh, get your guess in early and uh, get your name eligible to be drawn for the uh, for the final drawing. Since this is a new idea we are tinkering with, uh, we're going to do this on the honor system. If we sense that there is any uh, abuse uh, by the participants of this, we will have to make some modifications along the way. So we're trusting everyone to play fairly, play by the rules. If you know the answer, go ahead and tell us, but you know, you don't go sharing it with, you know, 100,000 of your closest friends so that there's 100,000 names to draw from each week. Right. That'll make my job a lot harder. So let's give this a try, folks, and let's see what we can do. All right, we'll see how it goes. We're going to start this year with a puzzle, logic puzzle. And uh, this logic puzzle was submitted by listener Alvaro Ibanez. Thank you, Alvaro, for submitting this. This is a very good one. A jeweler has nine pearls, which all look and feel exactly alike. However... He knows that one of them weighs more than the other eight. He has access to a classic scale, you know, the one with two arms often seen in Lady Justice's hand. What is the minimum number of measurements required to know, with absolute certainty, which pearl is the one that weighs more? All right, right, give us your guess. That's a fun one. Yeah. It is a fun one. Go ahead and give us your best guess. Info at theskepticsguide.org and our message boards are sguforums.com. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. We are joined now by Massimo Pigliucci. Massimo, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. It's a pleasure as usual. Uh, and Massimo is the chair of the Department of Philosophy at SUNY Lehman College, the editor-in-chief of the journal Philosophy and Theory in Biology. He's the host of a podcast called Rationally Speaking and also uh, one of the authors on the blog by the same name. 
uh, the author of several books, including the book that we'll be discussing this evening, Answers for Aristotle. But his greatest claim to skeptical and scientific fame was that he was the first ever guest on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. That's exactly right. <laughs> As if you needed anything else. That's right. I was just that's just the cherry on the top, Massimo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Massimo, I talk about you a lot actually um, in skeptical circles because like you're the one, in my opinion, like the one real philosopher that, that we have in the skeptical movement. I'm not saying you're the only philosopher, but like you're the the, the one who's active who's trying to keep the rest of us philosophically honest, if you will. <laughs> and that's that's essentially what your recent book, Answers for Aristotle, is about. So tell us about it. Yeah, in, in some sense. Um, it is aimed at the general public, um, so it's not, it's not a technical book. Um, it, but it is about the relationship between philosophy and science, which I think that, that is something that certainly members of the skeptic movement um, should be aware of or a little more sort of cognizant of. But the basic idea of the book is really that this is, this is essentially a self-help book for people who don't believe in self-help books. Uh, the, the basic um, uh, approach is that, look, when, when we're dealing with you know, sort of the, the big questions in life, you know, morality or, or relationships or, you know, general views of the world and whatever, where do we get our best hints, our best information about that? Uh, I don't think we get them from religion. Um, common sense is helpful, but up to a certain point. So it seems to me that the best combination of answers or at least approaches to those kinds of questions come from the two most effective traditions of thought in the Western and possibly the world um, history, which, which are, of course, science, uh, as far as factual questions are concerned, and philosophy, as far as how to reflect on the implications of those, of those factual answers we get from science. So that's what the book is about. It's it's how to combine science and philosophy in what I sort of jokingly call sci-fi. Actually, people pronounce it sci-fi, but it should be sci-fi because the the second part is P-H-I for philosophy. Sci-fi. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I think that sci-fi was more. Uh, I don't know. The the the, the publicists thought it was more uh, sounded better than sci-fi. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, then why did the Sci-Fi Channel change its name to sci-fi? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, right? <laughs> that really pissed me off when I did that. Agreed. So science gives us the facts, as it were, and philosophy tells us how to think about those facts. Is that a fair summary? Well, yeah. It's Of course, as, as you know, that's a little um, simple version of the, of the whole thing. In reality, there is no sharp distinction between science and philosophy. Uh, there are many areas of overlap. Uh, the most obvious one, perhaps, is philosophy of science, mm -hmm. uh, or and in fact also epistemology. I mean, there are areas of philosophy that are directly relevant to science, and there are also areas of science that are definitely relevant to philosophy. I mean, uh, one cannot do these days any serious philosophy of mind, for instance, unless one is well read in you know neurobiology and, and cognitive science. So, so there is quite a bit more overlap than. The, than the simple distinction between science and philosophy. But it is true that, you know, historically speaking, and certainly in, modern, in the modern academy, the two disciplines have evolved uh, onto quite different directions. And yes, broadly speaking, science deals with the best factual information we can get about the world, and philosophy deals with reflecting, you know, methods of reflecting about, uh, about what that, that information tells us. Yeah, so they're, they're complementary intellectual disciplines. Right. If you will. And I think what's... You know, you know, you've made this point a lot, and I know in your blog as well, and also in our prior discussions, that scientists who think they can answer all questions with just science have to first realize 
that when doing science, they are also practicing philosophy because there has to be a philosophical underpinning of science itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one of the best um, uh, summaries of that position was actually due to uh, Dan Dennett. Um, as as you know, several years ago, he wrote uh, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which is one of the most influential books in in sort of many people's understanding of of uh, evolution and the implication of Darwinism and so on and so forth. But in that book, as much as that book is of course very much science friendly and it does take on board, uh, you know, evolutionary biology in particular, uh, Dennett points out that. Uh, there is no such a thing as philosophy-free science that is only science that takes on board the philosophy without examining it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, the question is not that scientists should necessarily do philosophy. In fact, I would discourage scientists from doing philosophy uh, be- just just in the same way in which I would discourage philosophers to, from, from doing science. Those are sufficiently separate activities, as I said, that they require different skills. And also, by the way, they have developed huge uh, technical literatures of their own, so it's it's really difficult to to do both in a in a reasonable way. But uh, what I do suggest is that both uh, scientists, um, as academics and and sort of the general public at large, would be better off by respecting each other's you know sort of territory and 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 what what comes out of the other field, and also being a little bit acquainted with what comes out of the other field. Yeah, so just as like in the skeptical movement and just in general, we promote the idea that people should have a basic scientific literacy, not that they should be able to practice science as a lay, right. lay person, but just be scientifically literate. But by the same token, uh, people should be philosophically literate as well, again, not to be able to engage at cutting-edge philosophical technical discussions, but to have some idea when philosophy is in play at least. Correct. Uh, so, for instance, a, li- a little bit of uh, understanding of uh, basic philosophy of science or epistemology, for instance, uh, would go quite a long way for skeptics uh, to have to develop a better appreciation, not just for the power of science, which is you know unquestionable within the community, uh, or unquestioned within the community, but also for the limits of science. You know, there, there's there is a lot of stuff that science hasn't figured out, maybe will never figure out. You know, th- there is a lot of uh, you know science needs to be seen for what it is a very powerful but nonetheless human uh, epistemic activity based on certain methods. Those methods have certain problems and limitations. And, uh, it, you know, the, the skeptic is supposed to be thinking rationally about a broad range of issues, and that ought to include, it seems to me, also the functioning of science itself. Is there an area where you most frequently see science or skeptics go wrong when it comes to philosophy as it's relevant to what we do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think there's more than one. Uh, <laughs> Give me your uh, top slow three. Down, slow down. <laughs> don't don't kill us. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. It's so so. One of the I think uh, the the major areas that I've seen in uh, coming up quite often in the last, uh, especially the last two or three years, is actually the relationship. It, it's 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 ethics, mm-hmm. and um, and what science can or cannot tell us about ethics. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion about. You know, ethical reasoning and what it is about, and are there moral truths, and how do we discover moral truths, and all, and, and that sort of stuff. And of course, the, the naive position among some skeptic quarters uh, is that, well, you know, either morality is all about it, it's 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 entirely an, an, a human invention, so it's essentially one step removed from moral relativism, which most of us don't want to go uh, to. 
or then if it is a, a, uh, a, about objective facts, then those facts have to be, of course, uh, uh, matters that science can investigate. And therefore, we're going to have, you know, you name it, uh, evolutionary biology or neurobiology uh, is going to give us uh, answers to moral questions. I, I think that this, the reality is a lot more complicated than that. I think that evolutionary biology tells us something very important about morality, that neurobiology tells us something very important about morality, but that neither one of those exhausts what, um, you know, the, the province essentially of, of moral philosophy, of, of ethics in general. So let me give you a quick example. I think that evolutionary biology is absolutely necessary in order to understand where uh, a sense of moral uh, right or wrong comes from. I mean, we evolved it. Uh, mm -hmm. We are social animals of a particular type, and there is no magic behind it. It doesn't come from gods. It evolved over, pe over a period of time. The building blocks of a moral sense, of moral intuition, if you will, or a moral uh, instinct can be found in other, in other primates. And, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, it would be really bizarre if uh, morality, for some reason, were the only thing that we cannot find any uh, sort of gradual examples or partial examples in, in other species. Yeah, so, birds have morality. Bird, I mean, the birds punish each other for not yeah. uh, doing what uh, the group is in the group's best interest. If, like, one bird doesn't warn the others about a predator, then they won't get warned next time around. You know, so that's been wow. demonstrated experimentally. The thing that I quibble uh, a little bit about that is, is that I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that they have morality as in, obviously, uh, as we understand it uh, from a human perspective, meaning they don't have the ability to reflect on what they're doing. But they do have an instinct that correspond that if you were if you were to see those actions in a human being you would say oh that's that's a moral action that's yeah well that that's but my point is what you were saying that there are evolutionary antecedents we could see the elements of morality in other species obviously in an elementary form not in the reflective form that we have but they have an instinctive notion of reciprocity which informs our ethical senses right exactly now if you go from there to the neurobiology or, or the cognitive science in general of moral decision-making, that also tells you something interesting. It tells you, for instance, um, not only which areas of the brain tend to be involved in moral thinking, you know, that sort of stuff, which is, which is sort of interesting in, in and of itself, but it, it, it tells you something more deep about how we uh, think about morality. For instance, let me, let me give you one example. Uh, you probably, you guys probably know, I've heard of, uh, uh, quite a bit about sort of the, the, uh, the different versions of the trolley dilemma, right? There, there's yeah. two basic forms, as, as you likely know, are the one in which there's these trolleys coming down the road and it's about to hit and kill five people. And you have, uh, you happen to have a very conveniently located lever next to you that if you pull, you're going to divert the trolley on a second track where it's going to kill, kill only one person. Question, would you do it or not? Answer, empirically speaking, most people would say yes. That's interestingly, by the way, cross-cultural, depending in regardless of how you, you present the dilemma, pretty much people respond the same way. Eight or 90% of people say yes. Then you switch into a second situation where you don't have the lever, you're on top of a bridge, there's this really bulky, big guy in front of you, and you, the only option you have is to push the guy off, uh, off the bridge to save the five people. Uh, question, would you do it? Most people answer no. Now, the interesting question there is, well, why would people answer, most people would answer yes to the one and no to the other, since at least um, at a, one level of analysis, the two situations are perfectly analogous. You, in both cases, you have five people you're, you're about to save, 
than one person that you are about to kill. Now, it turns out that neurobiology sheds some light on this, and it's perhaps not, sur- perhaps not surprising, but it's interesting the way it works. It turns out that if you do a brain scan of, you know, with all the limitations, of course, of neural scanning, but in current technology, but if you do a, neur- a neural scan of people, you know, an fMRI of people when they're involved in thinking about the two, the two uh, versions of the dilemma, in the first case, the lever case, uh, people tend to involve the areas of the brain, like the, the, the frontal cortex, that are involved typically in sort of rational, deliberate decision making. On the other hand, when people are thinking in terms of the second version of the dilemma, the pushing a guy off, off the bridge, uh, a lot of the action switches to the amygdala, uh, which, of course, is more connected to emotional reactions you know, and, and fear and things of that sort. Now, that makes perfect sense because basically the second version of the dilemma is much more personal. Right? You're about to actually push somebody as opposed to do something from a, from a distance, like pulling a lever. So it makes perfect sense that people switch ways of thinking. They, they use different neural pathways, essentially, to think about this. That is very interesting, and without the science, we wouldn't find out why exactly people are doing that. This, the question of where it still remains, should you or should you not push the damn guy off the bridge? Yeah. Right? Well, I, th- I think an interesting way to look at it too, or what about the social ramifications? Like you're gonna, you're actually breaking the law if you push the guy off the bridge, even though you're not gonna get arrested for not saving people's lives. Does that come into play? Uh, it does. Depending again, the, as I said earlier, that there's a, a, a lot of different variants of the of the thought experiment, and yes, some of those do involve information about you know the consequences and and uh, and, and if you're of course a what in uh, moral philosophy it's called a consequentialist or utilitarian, you will take those into account as well. But the basic version doesn't include those. And it's one of the things that comes out interestingly, for instance, from the uh, cognitive science literature, is that there is a, a small minority of people who do not change their mind, who both push, push, uh, you know, pull the lever and push the guy off the bridge. Turns out that psychologically speaking, those people correspond to a somewhat sociopathic profile. Because mm-hmm. those are people that essentially do not engage with the amygdala. They, they don't engage the emotional reaction. They, they just think rationally about the whole thing. The reason I brought that up is because – so we, now we have an evolutionary account uh, of how we got morality to begin with. We have a neurobiological account or we begin to have a neurobiological account of how we actually engage in that sort of uh, thinking. And all of this is very interesting. The thing that we still need to deal with, however, is, okay – in interesting, complex, real-life situations, what do we ought to do? And that, I think, is where the, the philosophy, the interesting philosophy comes in because, of course, there are hundreds of years of discussions among philosophers uh, that have been able to frame uh, modal dilemmas according to two or three major ways of thinking about it. One is the, the, one, I, the one that I mentioned a minute ago, the, the utilitarian, the consequentialist view. Uh, there is also deontological thinking, which is based on rules, essentially. And then there is a virtue ethics thinking that is based on, on sort of uh, character development or of what is the right thing to do in terms of what is the right person you want to develop into. Anyway, those three frameworks help you think about the dilemma in a way that might uh, uh, lead you to reach a conclusion, a considered conclusion based on reason. So you go beyond your instinctual reaction, you go beyond what your amygdala is, 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 is telling you, and you think about it and say, well, wait a minute, here's the situation, here's what the right thing to do is, and here's why. Then there are those people like Sam Harris, who I know you, you've engaged with, at least uh, on your blog, who argue that if we had enough scientific information, 
that could answer moral questions for us, essentially. You, you've pretty much explained what's wrong with that answer, but how, how have you responded to Sam Harris's position? But let me give you a simple analogy. Uh, imagine instead of talking about moral decision-making, we're talking about mathematical abilities, right? So how is it that people have developed, human beings have developed the ability to solve mathematical problems? Well, again, you got the same three sort of answers. From an evolutionary perspective, it probably was useful at some point or another to start counting or to start thinking in terms of very simple, abstract mathematical entities uh, that helped our survival. That's, of course, speculation. We don't, we don't really have access to the, sort of the, the relevant information, ecologically speaking, but it's very likely something like that happened. Now, today, you could uh, put somebody, let's say, who's trying to uh, prove of, uh, for Matt's last theorem, uh, you can put them under an fMRI scan and you can figure out how active the different areas of the brain are and so on and so forth. There's one thing, however, that neither the scan nor the evolutionary story can actually tell you, and that is, is the guy getting the proof of the theorem right? Is 2 plus 2, 4. Yeah. Well, Massimo, uh, thanks for joining us again on the show. It's always a pleasure. It always seems like it goes by fast and we're just scratching the surface. Uh, but for our listeners, uh, Answers to Aristotle. And just tell us about that title for a second because that's interesting. Aristotle is, in fact, the philosopher that is most widely quoted or referred to in the book. And there is a reason for that. Aristotle was the first guy in the uh, Western tradition that really was doing exactly what a book is about. He was doing both philosophy, you know, he's, he's known for uh, establishing the foundations of logic, for writing the, the first comprehensive book about ethics and so on and so forth. But he also was doing science. I mean, you know, most people don't realize this, but, but uh, uh, Aristotle was actually doing field biology, by the way, uh, on, the is- uh, on the island of Lesbo, uh, among other places. And he was trying to, you know, figure out, okay, he was interested in, uh, for instance, uh, shells. And he was there, and he was collecting samples and looking at things. Now, he got a lot of stuff wrong. Uh, which The idea is that we got answers for, for the questions that he asked that, that he certainly did not have access to. Uh, but it does embody the spirit of the book. He was the guy that, that figured out that, look, you you need both factual questions and two ways to reflect on the meaning of those questions. And, and that is sort of the, the science and philosophy combination in the broader, broadest possible sense. Well, thanks again, Massimo. Thanks, Thank Massimo. You. It was a pleasure as usual. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Now, before we get started this week, uh, because this is the first science or fiction of 2013, I do have the stats, the full science or fiction stats from last year. Hey. These were sent to us by Kat, who, uh, from sgutranscripts.org, so thanks, Kat. So, here they are for 2012. Bob had played 47 games, lost 19, 128 for a total of 59.6%. Yeah. Damn. Evan played mm-hmm. 50, 25 and 25, exactly 50%. Wow! I think, wow, that's pretty good. Jay also played 50. Lost 26, 124, so just shy of Evan of 48%. I played seven, 
lost three and won four, so I'm at 57.1%, just behind Bob. And Rebecca Mm -hmm. played 44, lost 17, won 27 for a total of 61.4%. Wow. Just edged out, Bob. Nice. Congratulations, Rebecca. Congratulations. Thank you. Overall, we're way above average. That was. All doing better than random guessing. Yes. Yeah, but Hooray! Rebecca, Rebecca and I did worse than last year, though. Yeah, Jay and I felt dumber this year. This year. <laughs> how could I? How could I start off so well and then totally tank it? Regression Evan, to the mean. Randomness. Evan, our goal for this Jay. year: better than fifty percent. You bet. Okay. You bet, buddy. It's a brand new year, though, guys. Are you all ready? Clean slate. We do have a theme for this week. <laughs> God damn it! This theme. <laughs> This theme is dedicated to Jay. <laughs> it's all about little babies. Oh, well, okay. Prepare Jay's Jay for giant his baby. Yeah, for his upcoming. <laughs> oh, is that what you mean? Child will be born in a few weeks. Oh, all goes well. Okay, so here we are. Item number one: A study finds that maternal use of antidepressants during pregnancy is associated with a greater risk of sudden infant death syndrome. Item number two, a new study concludes that babies start learning language in the womb. And item number three, new research finds that for most babies, it is better to leave them alone when they cry at night rather than comforting them. Jay, because this is a a theme in your honor, you get to go first. The first one about the study that says that mothers that took antidepressants while they were pregnant, that's interesting, that it increases SIDS. Now, I do know that SIDS... SIDS is when the baby stops breathing, and I thought that that had, that had to do with temperature. Uh, okay, the, the second one about the baby's learning language in the womb, I, um, I believe that one is correct. I think that they can hear their, their mother's voices before they're born, and they can identify their mother's voice and actually start to pick up language. So I, I think that one is science. And the third one, last one, everyone, about that it's better to leave most babies and let them cry at night instead of comforting them. And I'm not sure about that. Now, this one, of course, Steve's not going to answer questions, but a newborn baby absolutely needs to be fed on a regular basis. And one of the reasons why a baby cries is because it wants to be fed. It could be just hungry, which you should feed a, a hungry baby. The whole crying baby thing to me, you gotta, you got to go in, you got to check on the baby and feed them. But for some reason, I'm thinking here, Steve, that because you're going to be leaving the baby alone in the room, that this could be later, maybe not a newborn. I'm going to say that because of how vague that third one is, I'm going to say that the first one, the one about SIDS, is the fake. Okay, Bob. The uh, baby start learning language in the room. Yeah, I mean, that just makes that makes sense. I would I would expect that um, the unborn baby can hear uh, its mother's voice. I remember reading wa- a while back about how how babies can recognize their, their mother's their mother's voices soon after birth. It just makes sense that they would become accustomed uh, to, to the language and be primed and ready to go right out of the gate, so to speak. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, leaving crying babies alone. Yeah, that was the conventional wisdom uh, 12, 14 years ago when I when I had an infant in the house. When, after Ashley was born, it was pretty much a lot of people were saying that, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, the baby wakes up. There's some separation anxiety. And uh, if if the parents come rushing in, then the baby will get used to that and uh, expect it at all the time. And if they can get used to waking up, being alone, then going back to sleep, bam, perfect. That's what the baby will do. 
So that makes a lot of sense too. So considering that two and three, this, they make so much sense to me. I, I just don't think that um, that you could say that mothers that have had babies who died of SIDS, I just don't think you'd have a decent percentage of them also being on antidepressants. Yeah, I'm going to say that the SIDS is fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Uh, yeah, I don't know. But the, the one about leaving babies alone when they cry at night, that is like a huge can of worms in the parenting blogs and forums. I, I feel like that's one of you those, those things that... I have friends who are parents who get involved in the mommy blogs and stuff. And yeah, that's that's for like the past 30 years or so that's been a huge uh thing i there's like there's even a title for it like that's a it's a parenting style that's specifically based on remaining fairly detached from your children in the hopes that they will learn to fend for themselves and everything that i've read which admittedly is not a ton because i don't have a kid and i'm not planning to have one anytime soon but everything I've read suggests that it's BS, that, like Jay said, when the baby cries, it's crying for a reason, go pick it up. So I'm going to say that that's the fiction. And Evan? Oh, everyone made very good cases for all of these. Bob, you, I think you hit on the SIDS one. Uh, antidepressants during pregnancy associated with a greater risk of sudden, sudden infant death syndrome. Antidepressants being... Uh, more prescribed more prescribed these days than they were way back when but there were still SIDS occurring way back when um so I'm I'm thinking that that one's the fiction but Rebecca you brought up a good point good points about the crying Rebecca I hate to leave you alone out there I'm gonna go with what my first instinct was I'm gonna say the SIDS is the fiction okay so I'm a little surprised that you guys all believe that a new study concludes that babies start learning language in the womb is science you Spanish all, or all, French? Why? You guys all believe that one. I don't know. That why? One struck, that one struck me as, as being a little out there, but that one is science. Why do you think that was the most obvious one to me? Steve, I read that one, and I was talking to my wife, Courtney, <laughs> about it, and she she goes, eh, I don't know. That sounds like BS to me, which <laughs> yeah. is funny because now it's on our game here. I just, yeah, it just struck me as like, really? Really? Um, all right, but this is true. It's a study does conclude this. I'm not sure how much I totally buy the conclusion. And this is the first time a study has shown that newborns are not naive to the, the language of their mother. Uh, what the researcher did, this is uh, Christine Moon, professor of psychology at Pacific Lutheran University. They studied infants that were just hours old. And the research paradigm's interesting. They had them uh, suck on a pacifier that was attached to a computer. <laughs> and, and when they sucked on the pacifier, <laughs> hang on, they sucked on the pacifier. 10,000 volts. It would play a recording of vowels from either their, na- their mother's native language or a foreign language. Interesting. And that it would play it for as long as they sucked. And then when they stopped sucking, it would stop. And then when they started sucking again, it would play a different vowel. It sucked more. So, so the question is, would they listen more to uh, vowels from their parent language or from their mother's language specifically or from a foreign language? And the, with the idea, and this is a paradigm that was used in other research, that they would listen longer 
to vowels that they were not familiar with. Oh, interesting. Because they were novel. The brain's like, hey, this is new. I got to pay attention to this. Not, oh, this is something I've been hearing for months, you know. And in fact, they found that the, the infants did listen longer, you know, based upon their sucking on this pacifier to vowel sounds from foreign languages than to their mother's language. But what if they found the mother's language more soothing and so wanted to listen to it longer? Yeah. As I said, this is, you gotta buy every link in this chain. Yeah. You know, to, to buy this. But the thing is, any difference, any difference, you could say, okay, they're not naive. And it was not, they weren't listening to sounds of their mother, just vowels from their mother's language or a foreign language. Mm -hmm. So any difference would probably, you know, means that they're, they were getting something, you know, if you believe the difference itself, if the data itself is compelling, but. Definitely the kind of study that I'd like to see replicated and looked at from different angles. But that was what this study concluded. Let's go to number one. A study finds that maternal use of antidepressants during pregnancy is associated with a greater risk of sudden infant death syndrome. Rebecca thinks this one is science. The rest of you think this one is the fiction. And this one is the fiction. Yes. Yeah, baby. Not a good start. Not a good, not a good 100. start. Oh 100%. Uh, so yeah, this, this is interesting. Uh, so the, first of all, the news item that I was basing this on showed the opposite. The use of antidepressants during pregnancy not linked with increased risk of stillbirth, infant death, uh, or other bad outcomes. Uh, so that's very nice. And I did do a little research on, you know, because I said, let me just say the opposite. And then I did some research just on SIDS in specific, specifically. And what the literature shows is that depression in the mother is associated with increased risk of SIDS. Uh, and in fact, this leads to a recommendation that mothers be treated for their depression. Interesting. Whoa. In the hopes that it would decrease the risk of SIDS, if mm. anything, because untreated depression is a risk factor that has been identified for sudden infant death syndrome. Now, SIDS still remains a little mysterious. You know, it's not like we completely understand exactly what, you know, what is happening. We've identified lots of factors, you know, that increase or decrease the risk. And it's thought that, you know, it is, uh, that they essentially they stop breathing. And over, you know, over the years, I've read so many different things like, you know, it's, it's good if they're in the room with the parents because maybe the higher CO2 content drives the, re- the infant's respiration more. Uh, there are some drugs that are associated with an increased risk of SIDS, and those are, and this is more for breastfeeding now, not antenatal. But uh, so for breastfeeding mothers, antidepressants are still fine, but you want to avoid anything that would be sedating. So Valium-like drugs are not good. Lithium is also another one that was identified. So drugs that could pass through to the infant through breastfeeding and can cause sedation will increase the risk of SIDS. The bottom line is, if you're breastfeeding. Your OB should know every medication that you're taking, and you need to talk to them about, is this something that would get passed through the breast milk to the infant, and what risk or effects might it have? So don't just take, you know, breastfeeding is actually, you're you're still linked to the infant, you know, biologically. It's actually more metabolically demanding on the mother than being pregnant, breastfeeding. You still need to take that very seriously. All right, which means new research finds that for most babies, it is better to leave them alone when they cry at night rather than comforting them is science. Now, Rebecca, you're right in that this is a controversy, and there's two sides. There's two schools of thought here. There's the, if you comfort them, they'll feel reassured and more secure, and if you leave them alone, 
and to cry, they'll feel abandoned. And then the other side is what Bob articulated, which is they kids need to learn, babies need to learn how to soothe themselves. If you run to them every time you hear them crying, cry, you're reinforcing the behavior of the crying, and they're not going to learn how to soothe themselves. And that is essentially what this latest round now in this controversy has shown. Uh, researchers have found that babies need to learn how to soothe themselves back to sleep. This is also based partly on the notion that infants have a sleep cycle, just like everyone else, just like adults, and that sleep cycle involves you know, going into deeper stages of sleep and then coming into lighter sleep, kind of waking up and then drifting off back to sleep again. That's natural. If the child is fussy or is, you know, upset at all when it wakes up, uh, it, it, it might cry during that stage of its sleep, but that's perfectly normal for it to be quote unquote awake, you know, at that time. And what the researchers found is that for some babies, again, not for everyone, but for some, that they were better sleepers later on in life meaning like 18 months, you know, two years, if they were allowed to soothe themselves back to sleep and that those babies who uh, whose parents picked them up every time they cried, uh, that they had the delayed learning of self-soothing and they had a worse sleep later on. So good job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Off to an <laughs> ironic start given that Rebecca won last year and – Watch, she'll sweep the table the rest of the year. Yeah, it's a hey, it's an endurance test. <laughs> yeah, it's a marathon. It's like one basket in basketball. Doesn't mean that much. It's, it's a marathon, <laughs> but right now you're in last place. So, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I have a quote that was sent in by a listener named Jim O'Rourke, and this is a quote from one of my absolute favorite science popularists. Our imagination is stretched to the utmost, not as in fiction, to imagine things which are not really there, but just to comprehend things. Which are there? Hmm. Does that sound like Ar- anybody? Arthur Clarke? Nope. Richard Feynman. Ah. Richard Feynman. He's got a lot That's of good it. quotes. Yeah, he's very quotable. Richard Feynman! <laughs> <laughs> a, a listener of our show emailed us and said that we had inspired him, in part, to create something that I looked into and I thought was one of the, the best things that I had found in 2012 as far as... Uh, a learning tool, an entertainment tool. Listener's name is Eduardo Galvani, and we started chit-chatting. He wrote an, a, a book for the iPad. It's called The Yellow Cab of the Universe, which you can see how we may have inspired him. I loved it. I downloaded it. He gave me, um, he invited me to download his book. I did. It ended up it's one of the one of the best books I've ever downloaded on my iPad. It's it's amazingly interactive and it goes into a very simple yet very eloquent explanation of the universe and of the cosmos. It's just it's just fantastic. This book is is something that you could do with your kids. I think as a after Christmas present, you know, you want to buy something that you could do with your children that would really capture their attention. The the book just keeps going on and on. The content is fantastic. He's with his daughter, he's asking his daughter about her school, and she said, I don't like science, it's too boring. And it really bothered him, it shocked him. And he, he started to think, you know, what's wrong? It's not the science, the science is incredible. It's, it's the way that it's being taught. And he realized very soon after that that, that he had to create an interactive book. That's the, It all kind of gelled in his head, and he did. I, I don't recommend things often. I have absolutely zero stake in this other than I really am interested in having people spend time with their children and educate their kids on science. This is it, guys. This is one of those things that I think could really 
influence a, a young kid's mind to understand, not only understand the universe, understand science, and have an, an interest in, in something that's important for the future. So you can go to his website, uh, yellowcabuniverse.com, and that'll tell you everything that you need to know. You can also look it up in the iTunes store. You know, do it, enjoy it, and if you really liked it, you know, send me an email and let me know what you think and tell me what your child's reaction was to it. I'd be curious to uh, to know what they got out of it. All right. Thanks, Jay. And thanks for joining me all this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Thank you Steve. Happy New Year to you Happy and everybody, New guys. Year. Yes, Happy, Happy New, New Year. year. Looking forward to a great 2013. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>